May the 20th, 2018, lecture discussion number 24 on the book of Joel. Once again, those of you who worry about us not uh, being dedicated, uh, more evidence that you're correct. We will be missing next week so that everybody can go fishing for king salmon and clams. Clams in yet, Bill? Not yet? No, anyway, everybody will be down there as they usually are. <laughs> Okay, as is often the case, someone will approach the Holy Lexan transparent pulpit with the appropriate awe and reverence that it demands, and ever so humbly will put forth a question that was generated by the insightful and applicational sermon just rendered or just concluded. That happens uh, often. And last Sunday, none of that happened. None of that ever really happens here at beautiful downtown Cliffside, with the exception of the question part. Sometimes, rarely, okay, never, okay, uh, never statistically, not really invalid, so barely, I'll try to be precise. Occasionally, the lecture of the day brings forth questions that relate, but not all that often. Mostly, the questions are disconnected from the material that I happen to do that particular Sunday. It's always been that way throughout my so-called career. I learned to understand why. I think I do understand why. The reasoning is obvious. Remember that this is the place where a 10 or 12-year-old somewhere in there, old boy, shouted at his mother in the, in the midst of one of my presentations. That was about 20 years ago. I remember it. I remember where he was sitting. I remember what he said. I remember the response. It was indelible. So, might have been 18 years, but it was a long time ago now. 45 minutes in, another brilliant exposition from the highly trained professional, religious figure, me. The auditorium was enveloped in its typical quiet silence. Everyone was asleep. The ushers were busy rifling through the purses and pockets, gathering the loose change, and this brat kid yells at his mom. He whines. It was really more of a whining yell. He says this, Mom, make him stop. (laughs) It was fantastic. (laughs) It woke everybody up. It was a big scandal, and it's a true story, pretty much. A few details might be inaccurate. Remember, I had a concussion, and I'm in the aftermath. The point being, yea, a point, is that it's generally a good policy not to encourage the supposed re- religious professional by asking him questions, which will then lead me to continue an unending minutia that I omitted, because I can never get it all in the what do I got? Nine, 90 minutes. I used to do 90 minutes. Not that bad anymore. But I leave some on the cutting room floor, if you will. So people don't usually want me to keep going over it. And they ask me anything, anything else, something else at least. And, and as to the 12-year-old, I've lost track of him pretty much. He's obviously uh, in his 30s now. And I expect his parole hearing will be forthcoming. I... I <laughs> I think I'm going to be right about that. Okay, all of that just to say, uh, and it's just fantastic because I didn't know this, but I'm thrilled. Uh, I had somebody come up last week, 
couple of people actually, but one in particular picked a subject that is in the book of Joel, which is very cool for me when it happens. I don't know that they knew that, but they did. And I'm not going to give their name out. I'll just tell you their initials as I want to do. It's Jenna. And so uh, we won't uh, make it obvious who asked the question. But Jenna asked a question last week about the 12-step Hebrew betrothal ceremony. And as you know, I have done this hundreds of times, at least. Some of it is on the... Oops. Some of it is on the Internet. Most of it is not. Ah, can't even spell betrothal. I tried to spell it marriage. And that's what her question was about, which is fantastic because that is Joel 2, 12 through 16, where we are headed. So... A wonderful opportunity for me when this kind of stuff happens. Let me read it to you in its um, context here. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babies... Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that that the nation should rule over them. Why should people say among the people, where is their God? Okay, So right in the midst of that is the 12-step Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. And understanding verses similar to Joel 2, 12 through 16, which are all over the Bible. This is everywhere in Scripture, this ceremony. It, you're, in order to understand that verse, let the bridegroom go out. Let the bride come out of her dressing room. That requires literacy in this Hebrew betrothal ceremony. If you're going to understand or arrive at the totality of the meaning of these verses that are affected by it, what I would say is the real meaning. Knowing that God is treating Israel as a divorced wife, that's what he's doing. So I have this symbol of a divorced wife. Why is she divorced? She was divorced because of adultery. So I have a symbol of a divorced, adulterous wife. And knowing that God is treating Israel as that. This is Israel in the Bible. Now, she wasn't always divorced. There was a marriage. There was a God and Israel together. You can make the case of the second generation. But she's divorced due to continual adultery. What does it mean when it says adultery with respect to her? It means that she drifted into, deep into, paganism. She incorporated Babylonian paganism specifically into her societies, into her governance, into her religious order. Even though she is divorced and awaiting, uh, uh, I'm sorry, she's divorced because of adultery, she nonetheless is awaiting restoration. Now, that is controversial. 
Most of the church, most Christians today, I would say 90% of Christians today, because you include all kinds of different ecclesiastical entities in that group, but most Christians today do not believe that Israel will be restored. 1948, when Israel became a nation, was a shock to the theologians that, that overwhelmingly said no. For centuries they have said no. They have replacement theology, that Israel has been replaced. God has abandoned Israel, which is as far from a literal position in Scripture as you possibly can get in this subject. Nonetheless, it is commonplace. It is, it is in fact, the majority, overwhelming majority. But for today, just recognize God is treating Israel as an adulterous, divorced wife awaiting restoration. And simultaneously, he has another symbol that he that is the 12-step Hebrew betrothal ceremony, more so, certainly more specific, as to the pattern of how he will address the church. He's using the bride of Christ, if you will. She is a betrothed bride. Oops. And she, Israel, is awaiting restoration. And this is the church, or the bride of Christ, awaiting consummation. How many ends in consummation? I think just one. So notice this aspect. One awaiting restoration, one awaiting consummation. So, God, while he is using this symbol, I should say, put this on the board, people do not understand that these are symbols. He's treating Israel as an adulterous wife, divorced, awaiting restoration, and the bride is a betrothed, or the church is a betrothed, betrothed bride awaiting consummation. That is how it is designed. And this 12-step betrothal process is the pattern of how he addresses the church. And it's crucial that you know that. It's necessary that you understand these two symbols in order to properly interpret Scripture, all Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament. To quote Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum, which I do almost every time I get into this subject, failure to maintain and recognize these two symbols are occurring and that there are distinctions between them. Again, if I had to ask you um, to name a church that has this correct view, you would be hard-pressed to do so. I know many of you go to churches uh, alongside of this one. So you're what we call gluttons for punishment. And I got all of that. But the chances that you're the church that you go to that's not this one believes that Israel is destroyed and forgotten and is replaced by the, that by Christianity, that prevails. And what is it? It's wrong. It's destructively wrong. They even wear the priest garments of Israel pretending they're Israel. They look like they think they're supposed to look. They are miserably deluded and it is love to 
tell them so. So to, to re-quote A.G. Fruchtenbaum, Arnold Dr. Fruchtenbaum, failure to maintain, recognize the distinctions between Israel and the church, the wife of YHVH and the bride of Christ will only lead to interpretive error. And he is absolutely right about that. I would add to Dr. Fruchtenbaum's respectful admonition the errors that will come from not knowing these distinctions and to commingle them in a way that uh, replaces Israel, the errors will be disastrous. They will be blindingly severe. They're incapacitating in regard to scholarship. You're going to be wrong here and be saved, but if you're wrong here, you don't understand the Old Testament or the New Testament, frankly. You're just running around being a mess. Now, that'll get me some hate mail. Cool. We're running out of time here. I gotta. I don't want to stand in front of that throne saying I never told the truth, because I was afraid that it would impact uh, the attendance. <laughs> anyway, know that there are two symbols. The first symbol to repeat it: an adulterous, divorced wife. The bill of divorcement is at Jeremiah three six. So you can look it up. That's where the divorcement bill is in Scripture. The second symbol, the betrothed virgin bride. Again, the wife of YHVH. This is his wife. This is his bride of Christ. He makes these distinctions, knowing there's a difference between the wife and the bride. Seriously important. Israel awaiting marriage, the church awaiting consummation, knowing just that is of great value. I could quit. We could go to the chicken. Kentucky Fried Chicken, again today, it's a glorious day. If all that's all you got there, you, you always have permission to fall asleep here. You know that. I think it's a public service. But if that's all you get, that's fantastic. It's a, it's a, just knowing that, it's extraordinary value. It's almost crucial. I would tell you the deity of Christ, if you do not have a grasp of the absolute, complete, immutable deity of Christ, then you're in, you're, you're, oh, you're so deep in the ditch, we're not going to pull you out. That's such a great error doctrinally. I don't know what to do. I can't help you. Um, I'll try. But I'm just a very frail old man now. That's a big problem. But this is, is right, it's not near that. But this is at the, in the top five of uh, biblical error. So, and I really don't have time to go through all of this once more. I just can do a few points to Jenna's questions. Uh, which was the meaning of Matthew twenty four thirty six. So let's read that. What does Matthew 24:36 mean? But that of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Then he goes on to say this, which is absolutely connected to the He's God. This is what he says next. But as the days of Noah will, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then he talks about before the flood, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until that day that Noah entered the ark. 
So that's related to verse 36, but let's just go back to 36. But on that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only, and he builds upon that with Noah. There's your context. And how this, Matthew 24, 36, connects to Matthew 26, 36. Let's go read that. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you. They go directly together. And they immediately go to Genesis 15:17. So let me start throwing that on the board. I don't need to do this anymore. You've got this. It's pretty interesting when I was... When I was uh, last week, was it last week? I was not feeling well. And I'm looking at Cliffside Monitor right here. You can't see it in the camera, high internet. And I saw three Cliffside Monitors. One of them was white, and the two on the outside were black. And I would write on the board, and I would see the black, and then I would see this other line above and below it. It was very confusing. More so than normal for me. Uh, but let me put those on there. Matthew 24. Uh, i got to go back and make sure I get it right because it will go on the internet and be a mess. 36. Matthew 26. Make sure I get it right for, for sure. 36. Matthew... 4.11, Genesis 15, uh, boy, 6 is really important, but all the way through to, the, through to 17, um, Matthew 27.46, what else should I, Psalm 22, this is of course one of the sayings on the Christ, I'll just put it over here. Let's just stop there. This is the behold, where there's an incredible behold here. Christ has now cast Satan away, says, be gone, and Satan is begone. He's gone through this testing, the three tests of Christ. Uh, Brady was here last week, and he knew that there was uh, a relationship between Matthew 4 and, of course, uh, David's. Census counting and the three, uh, if you wish, choices that he had to make. There are three choices of Adam. Christ replicates all of that material in 4.11. But there's this amazing behold. And the behold is, is the angels came down and fed him grapes. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Which, of course, is not what they did. They ministered to him, which is the way of saying that they recognized that this was God himself. That's how you minister to Christ. You recognize who he is and what he's doing and what he means, what his plan is. The angels got it at 411. It's a big deal. This, of course, is Abraham where he cuts apart the animals, but he doesn't cut apart the two birds. And he chases away the vultures and darkness comes and all that stuff. Uh, this is the fourth saying of the cross, uh, where he says, My God, my God, 
He, he would have had it been him, if, had he been referring to himself, he would have said, myself, myself. But clearly he is not crying out to God to save him. That is nonsense that's all over our media. This is, of course, a replication or a repeating, if you will, a quoting of Psalm 22.1, which is the hind of the morning, which is the nation of Israel. That's something the nation of Israel, the hindmost of the, of the uh, herd, the deer of the dawn, if you will. It's a song. He's singing a song there. I have to throw that in because it always confuses people if I don't address it. I do agree that Psalm 22.1 belongs in Jenna's question as to regard to the meaning of 24.36 of Matthew. I think that's true, but not for the reasons typically taught. As you know, if you've been here, I've gone over that many times. John 19.28 is, I thirst. That really connects here. That's a very cool thing. The fifth of the seven. More so intertwined, if you will. But if I had to pick any of that, I would have picked Matthew 3.16. So let's read that one. Those are all there. They all have to come into the table when you do this subject. But... uh, Don't forget Matthew 3, 16 and 17. That's that's the big one. (coughs) Excuse me. Ah, Let me find it. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold. So I got another behold here. Find your, all your beholds in the Bible. Make a list of beholds. Has somebody done that? Absolutely they have. Every single one. Trying to put them all together. How much time do you think that took? How devoted to Scripture were those people? When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. It doesn't look like a dove. It descends like a dove descends. Does that make sense? Why is it doing that? The Holy Spirit could come in like an F-22. But it decides not to do that. It comes in like this. Why? It's a, like a dove. He brings up dove. He wrote the book. Does he know everywhere that the, the word dove is? Does he know what the doves are with regard to sacrificial system? Yes, he does. Does he know the dove of Noah? He even brings up Noah. <sighs> the heavens were open to him, of course, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. The Spirit of God alights on Christ. What's the obvious question? How much does the Spirit of God weigh? That may seem like a simple question, but we're back into gravity. What is gravity? What's the relationship between gravity and time? (laughs) Love those subjects. You hate them. And suddenly, 
So immediately and suddenly a voice came from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. (sighs) Really quick. How immediately is immediately? He saw the spirit of God descending and alighting upon him. And suddenly, how suddenly is suddenly? From heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the most obvious, the son, the spirit, the father, if you will, in scripture, in my opinion. Declaring themselves to be the one God of creation. That's what they're doing here. The triunity of Godhead being displayed in the Bible. There it is, Matthew 3, 16 and 17. It's also in other passages. I just happened to jump on this one. Uh, of course, Genesis 1, 26, Genesis 3, 22. And Genesis 15, it's pronounced in Genesis 15. All three are there. It's not as obvious to people as this one is, though, at Matthew 3.16. I chose this one because it's Jenna's fault. Make sure I didn't skip a page. I didn't. In other words, to solve Matthew 24.36, it's necessary to accumulate all the passages in the Bible where the triunity of God is contextualized. In other words, the triunity of God is placed into a triune environment and put in front of you. And that's what's happening in Matthew 24, 36. Let's read it again. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father also. Immediately, it is obvious that you have two of them there. And they're omnipresent. So when you start using language that separates them, you have to recognize that's not a good idea. But you can see in the text, too, of the triune Godhead. Now, Christ is omniscient God in the flesh. He is never not omniscient. He is never not omniscient God. Does he know what he's saying? Please answer yes. Does he know that we, the mucus dingleberry sheep, will not know what he said? And will actually completely, perfectly think the opposite of what he said. Yes, the answer is yes. You will read, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. If you're typical in the Christian faith, and you will make the perfect opposite, absolute response to what that actually means. He knows that we are mucus dingleberry sheep, which is why he calls us mucus dingleberry sheep. It's one of the big does. His words are exact. He's God. He said them with precision in Matthew 24, 36. They're perfect. They are, I erased it, but they are the Hebrew betrothal ceremony words. That's what they are. His disciples, not being as dumb as us, immediately knew, hey, that's Hebrew betrothal ceremony because they're what? Hebrews. We Gentiles, we're oblivious to the fact that those are Hebrew betrothal ceremony words. 
That's why we make the opposite uh, conclusion. So let's ask some more obvious questions. But of that day and hour, day and hour. Why did he break it into days and hours? What day is it? What hour is it? That's an obvious question. No one knows. No one knows. Help me here. What's that mean? How are you going to break that down? Who is no one? That's how you start. Knoweth no man is the old King James. I think that's very, very good. Knoweth no man. No man knows. Not even the angels of heaven. Okay? I have angels. How many are in heaven? Here's another question. How many are not the angels of heaven? Do I have angels of not heaven? I absolutely do. Those are the non-heaven angels, the fallen angels. The angels of heaven don't know. Do the fallen angels know? He says, not even the angels of heaven. What's implied about the not angels of heaven? Who would be most likely to know the day and the hour? The angels of heaven or the fallen angels? But not even the angels of heaven know. Does Satan know? I think it is obvious that Satan doesn't know. And if Satan doesn't know, the fallen angels don't know. Obviously, the no ones and the angels have a relationship. What is the relationship between no man and the angels? The relationship is that they are created beings with the free will to reject Christ, our God. So who remains? Who's left? No one knows. Knoweth no man, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Who remains that does that could know? How about animals? Living souls. Living beings also created. Do they know? If they do, they're not they're not talking. Why are they not in the list? Why are they omitted? Because they can't be condemned. They won't be condemned. They will not reject Christ. They have free will. I see it. I saw it today. I will see it when I get home. I have one one lab that is not happy that he is left alone. Even though he has another lab. She doesn't like him. So they actually they get along great. But the point being is, is that he wants to go. And he responds accordingly. And we're used to his free will being exercised. But he's omitted here because he's not condemned. So what's that tell you about what he's saying? Those who are in a position where they can reject me are not going to know this. So what's the subject? Let's keep going. Cutting to the chase. God himself knows. And God himself, Jesus Christ, 
chooses to invoke Hebrew betrothal 12-step ceremony language and says, but my father only. That is the language of that ceremony. Now, why does he do that? And I'm aware that some Greek manuscripts, you probably have a Bible that is from those Greek manuscripts. They've they've inserted, they thought, for clarification, to help the illiterate, is what they're saying, nor the son. So they put in there, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the sun. They add it. Your Bible might have it. If it does, there's a trash can over there. And, and, and naturally, nor the sun has found itself dug in like a blood-sucking gourd's tick into the modern church of our time, the Laodicean church that we see around us, nor the son is not in the text. He did not say nor the son. How do I know that that is true? Because it's impossible for him not to know. It's impossible. Makes no sense. It's not true. Nor the son is an attack on the deity of Christ. His omniscience, his omnipresence, his om. Omnipotence and, of course, his omnibenevolence. All of those are together. The omni, 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 omnis. It's not happenstance that Matthew 24, 36 is routinely quoted by those who deny the godhood of Christ. It's their go-to verse. It's in all their little pamphlets that they leave on your door. They rush to Matthew 24, 36. They carry flags with Matthew 24, 36 on it. They don't, but they would if they thought of it. Hopefully they'll give me some kind of financial compensation for the idea. But that's a little hyperbola, but it is exactly what the, the so-called Christian cults do. Christian cults being defined as something that has some trait of Christian doctrine. They have traits. But they're adamant in their denial that Christ is the creator of all things, John 1.3. They deny his godhood, and they do it as loudly as they can. They like that. Hebrews 1.2 identifies Jesus Christ as the one who made time. Didn't get to that last week. really doesn't fit here, but I'm beating it in here because it's so important for you to understand why he made time and what time is doing and who could make it. So reconcile your position that Christ, the one who makes time, doesn't know the time. So why does he use this Hebrew betrothal language? That verse, by the way, says that God speaks to us by son. By son. You'll have another word in there. You'll probably have the article, the son. But he doesn't say the son. He says by son. By son is a, is a language. It's words. He's called the word of God. God speaks to us by son. By son is a language system as well as a person. It says that he speaks to us by son, the ages, which is a Greek word that means time. The time, space, energy, matter were made by son, the language, the spoken word. And the cults who pretend to be Christian 
openly and unceasingly despise the truth that Christ is the I am, the creator of time, the Lord God Almighty, John 8.24. And therefore that makes them cults and they will perish in their sin of unbelief. Christ says in 8.24, I can't say it enough, especially as we come to the end of the age of the Gentiles, you must believe I am or you will perish in your sin. If you do not believe that he is the I am of, of Exodus 3, the creator of time, matter, energy, space, all things, were things, you will perish in your unbelief. And those translations, again, that have nor the sun belong in the receptacle to the right and to the left. We have two holy garbage cans, one in the a third holy. We have a, tri, a triad of gar, garbage cans. Anyway, where was I? Betrothal ceremony, 12 steps. Can't do all 12 steps. Won't do all 12 steps. Might throw in a step or two in the weeks to come, but I can't really do it today. It is too much material and it is too long. But let's just take step one. What is he saying here? In Matthew 24, 36. Step one of the 12 steps. The father of the bridegroom. The father of the groom. Selects the bride. Let me put it this way. Chooses the bride. He chooses the bride. And out come the hyper-Calvinists to say, Aha! All saved people are chosen by God. And they have no choice. They are predestined for salvation. And therefore, the ones uh, that do not or are not chosen by God are predestined for condemnation, including infants and children. Out they will come right here. Step five, I'll skip a few steps, however, says she must consent. Oh, dear. What do you suppose consent means? Define consent. Now, we know that the second person, see, I could just go flying all over the place here in this subject, and and I'm going to focus like a laser which, of course, never happens here, but pretend that it happened today. We know that the second person of the triune Godhead calls himself the bridegroom. Jesus tells us that he is the bridegroom of the betrothal ceremony, Matthew 9.15. He is the bridegroom. So that's helpful. So far, so good. Behold, the bridegroom cometh, right? So, who, though, is the father? Now, you might think that's an easy question. It is not an easy question. 
Never think that the Bible is going to be simple. He says otherwise. He says to us, how long, you simple ones, will you love the simple? Stop loving the simple. Isaiah 9, 6 casts some doubt right immediately as to who the Father is in this sentence, or in, in this step one, sorry. For unto us a child is born. Who's the child? Christ. So far, so good again is born to us. The Son is given. Who's the Son? Christ. Yay. Two for two. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called. So now we're going to learn the name of this. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. The name of Christ is Everlasting Father. Never forget that. Prince of Peace. Every Christ mass, winter solstice, it's on the board or somewhere. Lots of times they take out everlasting father. But Christ's name, this is Christ's name right here. He says he's the bridegroom, but one of his names is everlasting father. So the son whom is given, the born child, has this name, Everlasting Father. Obviously, the point is, yea, a point. Jesus Christ could assume both roles in step one, couldn't he? He could be the father and he could be the bridegroom. And he could do it at the same time because he made time, Hebrews 1, 2. When you're confronted by passages that bring to fore the triune nature of God, pack a lunch. Sit down. That's what Matthew 26, 36 is doing here. You're in the tallest trees that you can possibly be in. This is not something conceived by man of angel or angels, the triune aspect of the one God. See, of that day and hour, no one knows. Angels don't know the triunity of God. Man does not know the triunity of God. No one knows the triunity of God. Can't know it. It's unknowable. Man cannot conceive it. Angels cannot conceive it. The triune aspect of the one God. Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord's your God. The Lord is one. Christ refers to the Shema, John 10.30. I and the Father are one. He's talking about Deuteronomy 6.4. Some translations add my. I and my Father. Trash cans. We'll put some in the aisles here. Throw those Bibles away. Those are agenda-driven systems. My is not in the text. It's another addition. In John 8.24, he says... Uh, you must believe I am. A lot of your Bibles will add he. Not in the text. Those are triune statements. And the only one that I understands the triunity of God is God. We know it's there, but we don't understand it. I used to always say, somebody gets up and says, Today I will solve the mystery of the triunity of God. Throw your chairs and run. Because that's somebody that's stealing money. 
He is the I am. There's no he after it. The seemingly innocuous, innocuous sorry, insertions are not innocent adjustments. They are often the opinion, the commentary from the translators, and it's wisdom to eliminate most of them. I have a bunch of them in here. I still use it, but I block them all out. I know that somebody is trying to encourage me to uh, diminish the deity of Christ, and I will not fall for it. Some are helpful, but the ones that affect the deity of Christ, frankly, uh, um, well, let me say this. If you're trying to separate the triune one God into three separate distinct parts, that's heresy. And frankly, if I can be frank, and I don't even know Frank, it's wickedness and it's evil if you're doing that. Even even innocently, purge it from your thinking. Don't watch the movies. It's so common in the modern church. Why? Christ easily would be the father of the bridegroom if the father is the father. Does that make sense? They are the same. So if the father is the father, then Christ is the father and the Holy Spirit is the father. Right? See how I did that? I did my best to not make separations. But for the sake of the typology of Genesis 24, that's Abraham, Isaac, uh, uh, Rebekah, Eliezer, Bethuel. That typology is, is doing this too. Genesis 24. There's the triunity of God right there. Tri- explained as we could only partially grasp it. So let's go ahead and... Do this knowing that it is heresy and wickedness to separate them into separate entities. So put aside that for a second because you know. The one God who is invisible, let's go ahead and assign him. So this is the invisible God. He says he's invisible. So every time you see God, you are not seeing him because... He's the he's invisible. So the one God who is invisible, let's put him in the role of the father of the bridegroom and see if this begins to make some kind of of so we can understand what he's trying to tell us. And then we'll put the invisible God made visible, the firstborn over all creation, the one who has the authority over the creation, who made the creation, Colossians 1:15, Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and do what he says he is and attach him here. Now, the Israelis do it a lot better than us. They say YHVH, the Lord God. They say the angel of God. And then they say the spirit of God. All God. We have Father, Son. Holy Spirit. And people assume, because I have complete and always had complete total authority and dominion over my family, and they did everything I ever said at all times, we take that and we think the Father is superior to the Son and to the Spirit. What do we call that? Say it all in unison. That separation. You are in error. If you're intentionally in error... 
then you have fallen into wickedness. Remember thy story. I look at the time here. I know everybody's just, the attention is amazing for both of you. I had that woman one time, I said, Jesus Christ is not in subordination to the Father. And she left the church because to her, Christ is inferior to God. You're doing that. You must believe I am or you will perish. That would scare me if I read that and thought that. It doesn't scare very many people. But let's go ahead. Christ is the bridegroom. God the Father or the Lord God. That is the Father of the bridegroom. How are we doing? Step two, a price is negotiated. There's a price. Who do you suppose, because you've got to buy the bride, you've got to pay the price. Now, I, when I say Christ paid the price, you immediately know, you're in your heads, I hope, knowing what the price paid for you is, right? A price is negotiated, the price of the bride, the price to be paid, a contract here. There's a contract that has to be signed. There's, there is compensation, if you will. So, what's the obvious question immediately? Somebody negotiated the price. Who negotiated it? In the Hebrew betrothal that's actually performed, if you went to one and saw all these steps, and you wouldn't be able to, but if you did, you would see two people sit down and negotiate the price of the bride. Who are they? It's the father of the bridegroom. And the father of the bride. Quick math question. How many fathers do I have now? (laughs) From the mathematician. (laughs) Well, which father is the father? How's that for a question? He's the father of the bridegroom. Is he also the father of the bride? Is he negotiating with himself? Yes. See? It'd been real easy to say no to that, wouldn't it? But of the three, the Father God, the God the Son, God the Spirit, all the God, all the same, oneness, which one would you like to assign to the Father of the Bride? How many are left? Let's go ahead. That's an, that is an improper question. Let's go ahead and say this is the Holy Spirit. Only the Father knows. Does the Holy Spirit know? He's a Father. Do both fathers know? Or just one? Careful, don't split them apart. Don't ever make a decision in any way that splits them apart. Don't fall into that morass, if you will. (sighs) A price is negotiated. The price of the bride. Who signed the contract? Who signed the contract in the betrothal of Christ and the church? 
the father of the bride and the father of the bridegroom agree on the price, how much the price is, and, and when it will be paid and who will pay it. So again, who's the father of the bride? And most commentators, in an effort to create an uncluttered container, a little box that has a bow on it, they gravitate towards, by elimination, placing the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, in the position of the father of the bride, hoping that it's going to make a tidy room, if you will. It's not going to make a tidy room. Sorry, not really fixed. Sorry. Again, the Bible was not simple, especially this subject. This is the triune nature of God. Obviously, the oneness of God and the three persons of God complicate this beyond our ability to solve it or understand it. To repeat that, no human mind would have ever written this. You want proof your, your Bible is written by God? No human being would ever write the triunity of God. Or, for that matter, no, none would ever put uh, om, uh, omniscience and free will. It's clear evidence that Scripture is the divine authorship that, it, that he says it is. And the fact that it says that he is the creator of time and energy, matter and consciousness, all of that. I mean, it's only God would say that. Only God has ever said it. Anyway, for today, let's go ahead and accept the Holy Spirit of God is representative of the father of the bride. Everybody happy. But then along comes step eight. I'm running out of room. The bridegroom departs. To prepare to construct the bridal chamber. That's what he says when he says, I go to make a place for you. That's step eight. So here is, uh, here is the father negotiating step two. And here is step eight. And he goes to construct the bridal chamber for the purpose of the consummation of the marriage because the bride is awaiting consummation. The church is awaiting consummation. While this is being accomplished, here along comes step nine. And it just gets more difficult. The bride is consecrated. What that means is she's made holy. Sanctification as she is set apart and separated. Gathered up, if you will. That would be a very appropriate term. She's gathered up and placed aside where she waits for the bridegroom. She has her own place. And, and, and she, there's a waiting period. The groom's father is given the ceremonial responsibility to announce... When the waiting period is complete. And also when the chamber is complete. When the chamber is complete, the waiting period is complete. And the father has the, he is the one ceremonially, ceremonially, he is the one who is allowed to make that announcement. Question becomes, why is there a waiting period? What is the purpose of the waiting of the bride? How long have we been waiting? We have, we've been gathered up and set aside, removed from the world. The process of removing us from the world is not just removing us from the world. Does that make sense? This is not our home. We are supposed to be removed from it. Consider that next time you're on Facebook for four hours. 
Why is there a waiting period at all? What's the purpose of the waiting period? He's gathering the bride. Why is he taking so long? If he hasn't been taking so long, I don't get gathered. You don't get gathered. I wish he would quit gathering. Well, wait a minute. What about the ones who... You want him to stop with you. That isn't the attitude he wishes from us. It's the attitude we have. But why is there a waiting period? Think about that. Why doesn't the bridegroom announce the end of the waiting period? Why is it that the father of the bridegroom announces it? Who builds the building? Well, in the Hebrew, it's a, in the humanity side of it, the actual physical humanity uh, ceremony, not godly ceremony. That it, this is a symbol of the godly ceremony. In the human ceremony, the bridegroom builds everything. Who knows when it's done? He knows when it's done. He's the one that completes it. So how can he not know? He has to know. He's the one that finishes it. And then what does he do? He tells the father, it's finished. But does the father know? Well, yeah. He's not an idiot. Why would you read that and say, Christ doesn't know? Does he ever say he doesn't know? Let me read it to you. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the Father, or not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. He never in that sentence says, I don't know. He wouldn't say that. He does know. Why do you think he doesn't know is the better question. Why do you want him not to know? Let's keep going into the cults. But again, why doesn't the bridegroom announce the end of the waiting period? Why doesn't the father of the bride declare the end of the time? They do not. It is for, it is for the father of the groom to end the time of the gathering of the bride. Why is that? Obviously, Christ is referring to this in Matthew 24, 36. No one knows, not even the angels, when the waiting will end, when the permission to abduct the bride will be spoken. Not the gathering, but the abduction of the bride. The the carrying away, it actually means carrying her away. When that is spoken, that is an ominous day. Anna asked a question a while back that was fantastic. You've all gone to the rapture movies and they all tell you that the babies, the children, all children will be taken away. Okay? I'm going to ask you a couple of simple questions. I have a woman who is nine months pregnant, hasn't delivered. Does her baby go? How about a mother who is two months pregnant? Does her baby go? You start thinking about the process of that. How about a baby that is born after the rapture? Is that baby raptured? Why not? The purpose of the rapture is twofold. It is to bring Israel to jealousy and it is to remove the salt from the putrefy or from the body 
the dead body to send the body into putrefaction. Not that's the wrong word. I've got to say that correctly. I even wrote it down. Putrefaction. There. That's the point of the rapture. It has those two things to do. Where was I? When the abduction of the bride happens, there is this permission aspect. God the Father, if you have him in this role, role, gives permission to end the time. What does that mean? That's a solemn day. Very solemn day. The time of the gathering of the bride is over. And so, what is portrayed by this ceremony, specifically steps eight and nine? Well, it's salvation. The answer is salvation. The waiting time. God is long-suffering. He waits for those who will accept his gift of salvation. How long would the bridegroom wait if he got to make the decision? And he does make the decision. It's all one. But think about it. How long would the bridegroom wait? Second Peter 3, 9. Unbelievable verse. Very, very, very difficult verse. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish. How long would he wait? Finally, and this again is the cup story. It's identical to the cup at 36, um, Matthew 26. Finally, step 12 is the celebration of the marriage. An invitation is required to the marriage supper, the wedding feast. All the invited guests will be there. Who issues the invitation? Well, I'm going to make the case next week because Genesis, no, well, not next week, the week after, because Genesis', Genesis question is a lot more complicated than I thought. Okay. That was a joke. Not one person laughed. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to make the case that the father of the bride sends the invitation. Why does the father of the groom, uh, in the waiting time, why does the father of the bride send the invitations? And that's Abraham, Eliezer, Isaac, Rebekah, and Bethuel. Genesis 24. It's very helpful. So read that in your spare time. <sighs> Got to quit there. Left three pages on the table. I just want you to know, have no position that declares Christ anything but one with the Father or the Holy Spirit for that matter. Don't do it. It's really easy. It's always wrong. Don't be wrong. I don't know how it works is better than I'm wrong. So, they have to rise in order to get an invitation the time is over. I will make the announcement that the time is over. Someone will, if we even use this, we will issue an invitation, don't we? So you come up here. While you're up here, what are the elders doing? That's right, going through your jacket pockets. That's what they do.